Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Wow, a lot there, huh? 20 verses. There's a, it's jam-packed in there. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks just studying this, this, these 20 verses, uh, and we're going to just kind of do a high-level uh, overview of it, um, and specifically, we're going to look at, obviously, like I said, we're going to stop a little bit and, and really dig into chapter 3, verse 16, but, but we don't want to, to really build the case and set the foundation here, we want to make sure that we, we do cover some other things, so we are going to kind of go through this at a high level, uh, and I'm going to point out some things um, for you that, that are going to be clearly, that, that's going to be there, and, and you're probably going to say, why didn't he touch this? Why didn't he talk about this? Why didn't he talk about this? We just don't have time to talk about everything here in this passage, so uh, we will, I'm sure, at some point, Lord willing, if he tarries long enough, uh, come back and study um, creation in a, in a, in a more in-depth way. So, as I said, last week we talked about, like, you know, that God has made everything perfect, but then we look at our world today and we realize it's not perfect any longer. I said, so how did we get here? And when Luke reads that passage here this morning, um, clearly what we see is the consequence of the fall. And it's, the consequence is multiple things, right? Um, we, we're going to see pain. We're going to see judgment because of the fall. We're going to see conflict in relationships and conflict in, between husband and wives. And, and it's just massive um, consequence of this. But we'll also see in the consequence of, of this fall is that God is going to reveal himself um, and, and bring about a way for, for humanity to be forgiven and to be saved. And one of the things I want you to remember that when we look at the, the account of the fall here, and, and while it's horrible, we wish it would never would have happened, by God's sovereign providential work, the fall happens so that ultimately he can bring glory to himself. Because no fall, no need for Jesus to die. No need for Jesus to die, no need for us to submit, to worship, um, and to, to call him our king and our savior, and, and to pray and sing to him. And so the consequence of the fall is twofold. One, it is, it is a negative for humanity, it is, it is hardship, it is judgment, but at the same time, there's this beautiful thing that God is working through that judgment and through the pain and through all the conflict to bring about his son in a way that, that will change and transform us and ultimately um, we will spend eternity if we are found in Christ with him. So what's the big idea for this morning? If we have a big idea for this morning is disobedience brings judgment, pain, and marital conflict, but God provides a way to be saved. In the midst of the pain and the, the conflict uh, and the judgment, God in his gracious, loving way is going to provide a way. And so even in the midst of the, the creation story and here in the, the story of the, the, the documentation, I should say, of the fall, you're going to see beautiful pieces of God is pointing to the fact of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it and how he's going to save and redeem mankind for those that will come to know him. So... As we think about these three things I just talked about, judgment, pain, and conflict, marital conflict. Well, let's just take one at a time. Judgment. Is there anything we can do about that? No. Judgment's coming. Judgment's going to be on sin. We, we can't 
do anything about that. Now, we cannot sin. We can try not to sin, but we've all sinned already, so judgment has already been established for humanity because unless we're found in Christ, we will receive that judgment. And so one thing we can do, I guess, is, is come to know Christ and, and accept and believe and trust and walk after, um, and that's a, it's a critical thing. But ultimately, we can't stop the fact that justice is coming. Pain. Here in the text, we see that there's going to be some pain. Um, we see, obviously, pain in childbirth. Ladies, is there anything we can do to stop that? Epidurals, right? That's what you're thinking. Um, drugs, right? Um, but we can't stop that that's there. It's built in now in the fall. It's, it's going to be there. As it says later here in the chapter, as, as we work the ground, what's going to happen? It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard. It's going to be work. We're going to sweat. Can we affect that? Can we change that? No. That's what it is. This is what it's going to be until Christ comes and redeems and makes things all new. But what about the marital conflict? What about the relational conflict, specifically the marital conflict? Here's where I think that we can have some, um, but when we're in Christ, we, we have the ability in, in a way to, to strive to honor God and to live his design out, to, to live in a way that honors him according to design. That's the struggle of our, of, our, of our humanity. We want to live the way we want to live, but we do have the ability to say, no, if I'm in Christ, I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to want to honor God. We do have some ability here to live in a certain way that can resolve some of that conflict. We can't do away with the judgment only in Christ. We can't do away with the pain only in glory. Will that be totally gone? There'll be no more tears. But in this relational piece that's here, we can live in such a way to bring God glory, and the way that we do that is we honor him with how we live out our life, how we obey the word, and that's like last week when we talked about kings again. It's we, we need to make sure we stay in the word. When we drift away from the word of God, when we, when we go away and we think we can do things on our own, we have a better way, it never goes well for us, never goes well for humanity. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to jump in. We're going to pull lots of things out. We're going to move fairly quickly. And then when we get to 316, we're going to slow down a little bit, but we're going to move fairly quickly. So I um, hope you got your Bibles and get your pens ready, and, and let's dive in. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of, the tree in the, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow. A whole month of preaching could be done on that passage. And we're going to spend about three minutes. Um, what is the thing that first jumps off the page of the text is basically that, that, that Satan is a liar and a deceiver. Here in the garden, he wants, he's tempting Eve with, with not wanting to trust God, saying that God really didn't say that. Don't believe God. Don't, don't, don't trust him. Do your own thing. Isn't it wonderful? God knows he's, if you just, if you, if you, 
eat of the tree, you'll be like him. It's this desire to be like God. And where do we see that? We see that in the fall of Lucifer all the way back in the Old Testament in Ezekiel and places like that where his desire was to be like God. He wants to set his throne up on the north. In other words, to, to, to set his throne up above God. And so that is the desire in him. And so here he comes to God's creation and because he's been cast down. And now he sees that God has created image bearers in humanity to bear his image. It wasn't enough that, that Satan would say, look, okay, I see God. He's authoritative. He's, he's holy. And now he's making image bearers for himself everywhere. He wants to tear that down. He wants to destroy that. And so he begins this this process of lying and deceiving, distorting the truth, mixing lies with the truth so that we will be deceived. It was happening here in the garden, and it's happened every day and every moment since. Today, the God of this world is doing just that, deceiving people, um, tempting them uh, for all sorts of things, leading us into to decisions that are not good. It's He's Causing us to, I shouldn't say causing us, we make that choice. But he's, he's putting, um, hanging out, you know, the carrot out there and say, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Don't you want this? Oh, this, you, you, you deserve this. Boy, that's a big one right now in our culture, right? You deserve this. this, this no one can tell you you can't have this. You deserve this or this or this. You just live however you want. You deserve to live however you want. But we've already said last week that in creation, one of, the, one of the amazing things about God being the creator is that he gets to determine how he wants us to live. When he says, don't eat of that tree, he has the authority to say that. And so here, we're seeing that, that the woman is, is now wrestling with this decision. God has said something, and, and, and I know that's not right, but you're telling me this, and so what am I to do? And so that's, that's what happens here. But I want to step back, and I, I want to ask you a question. I want, I want to know what else jumps out of you at this passage. And, and sometimes when we read Scripture, there's a lot of questions we should ask when we're reading Scripture because it helps us to really think through it. So some people, and, and I get this, and we should just read Scripture, but it's really important to know what we're reading and to, to meditate on it and to, to look at it and say, what is this saying? And so there's some questions that we could ask. What does this say about who God is? What does this passage say about who God is? What does it say about who we are? Who's involved in this passage? Who's talking? Who's, who's the recipient? All right, now I want to just ask you that question. Who is, is the serpent talking to here? Eve. Does anybody think that's odd? Or does anybody ask why is he talking to Eve? Why is he not talking to Adam? Why did he choose Eve to speak to? Now, as we go through this entire section, I want to be real clear. We can get subjective because it, this isn't a play-by-play. -play. We don't have a, a, a transcript of everything that God ever said and everything Eve said, and we don't have a transcript of all those things. However, I do believe that, that God allows us, by the context of what's taking place, to make some judgments or some uh, assertions and conclusions about what's being said. So there's, there's two things we can err on. One, we don't make any assumption or we don't make any conclusion. We don't make any um, decision based on what the text says. And we just say, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's not right. 
or we can, what's called eisegesis, we can add things in. We can tell a whole story about what's here and it's not even in the scripture. And we make it up because it fits and we make it up. And that's not healthy either when we, do, right, when we read scripture. And so I'm gonna do my best to kind of thread that line here and I will tell you where, I'm, where it's a little subjective but I think that, that we can build a case for why that is. So on this particular one, why did the serpent speak to the woman and not Adam? Well, here's my... Here's my conclusion, and you may disagree with this, is that God had already established, I believe, um, headship in chapter 1 and 2. Why? Adam was created first. We talked about that. Adam was given responsibility to name all the animals, and ultimately he then names Eve after she is created. Um, It sure looks like in Genesis 1 and 2 that Eve was not present when God said, don't eat of the tree. Right? She hadn't been created yet. So Adam was given responsibility over the garden to protect it, to tend it. Right, And ultimately, I believe he's given the responsibility to, to, to make sure that no one eats of the tree, including the wife, the helper that he's been given. Right, He's going to be given. And so we've said last week there's some headship. I think you're going to see today, in my view, that headship is confirmed here in a multiple ways, but a couple really strong ways, I believe. And so then why does he go to Eve. Because I believe that one of the, the, the scripture teaches that one of the most powerful image-bearing things that, that God has is his authority, right? If there's one thing God is, he's majestic and he's authoritative. And, and that is, I don't mean that in a bad way. He is worthy of that authority. He, he has that authority because he is creator. That's what we've established. And what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God gives Man, men and women, authority in creation to dominate or to rule over the fish, of the, air, you know, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the livestock to have some authority there. Authority is established in government. We see that in the book of Romans. Authority is established in all sorts of things in scripture, in the church. There's headship even in the marriage, I believe. Authority is the image bearer, one of the, one of the most beautiful image bearers of God that there is. That's why Satan didn't like it. Lucifer didn't like it. There was an authority over him. And he said, I don't like that. I want to usurp that authority. And that is a challenge for every one of us. We do that. And I would even make the argument that things like evolution are at the heart of usurping God's authority. Because what we're doing is instead of trying to usurp his authority, we're trying to tear his authority down and make him mute so that there is no authority. If we can't conquer him will eliminate him. And so in evolution, we say there is no God. And so now there's no authority and I can live however I want. And so man has been very crafty about how we go about doing this. Here, God has established himself and Satan has to deceive her and say, no, he's acknowledging that God exists. He's just saying, don't believe him, right? Now, we've, 6,000 years later, we've said, no, God doesn't exist because that argument obviously doesn't work all the time now. And so here we see that he's speaking to Eve. And so I would make the argument that the reason he's speaking to Eve is because if he goes to Eve and he, he deceives Eve, and we'll see that that's what happens. She gets deceived. He, he lies to her and deceives her. And she does something outside of the headship of her husband. That now is corrupting that relationship and that image bear, right? And causes conflict. And the way that you begin to tear down the image bearer is because causing conflict in that relationship. 
And so I think what I would say is that the serpent speaks to Eve to corrupt God's design of headship. It wasn't because Eve was weaker, not as smart, not as intelligent. I've heard people say that. There's no evidence in Scripture whatsoever that that's true. It's that he wanted to destroy the headship issue. To say, if I can get you to rebel against that headship as he did against the headship of God, and and we see that all over the place, then I'm going to sow seeds here of discourse, and that's going to cause problems in the relationship, in the marriage relationship. And ultimately, I think, as the image bearer of God. So I think that is why. So just ask those questions when you come to Scripture, some of those questions. You, you, may, you may see it differently. If you do, come see me, right? All right, let's look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. All right, so the first thing we see is that, that, that um, there's always ways that we're tempted. The, the, Lucifer here, the serpent, is tempting Eve by saying, oh, it's, it's good for you. It's, it's, it's desirable. Was everything that is desirable good for us? Absolutely not. Everything that we want, that we see, that's, that's you know, tantalizing, it, it looks good, it looks right, it's something that's going to make me feel good. I mean, sin is just loaded with those type of feelings, right? And, and what we're, we're going to see is we're supposed to rule over that. We're supposed to master that feeling, but we don't. And so Satan begins to do these things, and, and it says it's going to make you wise. And so she is deceived, and she eats. And then what does she do? What do we see here? She gives it to her husband who was with her. So why didn't he speak up? If he was there when she ate, why didn't he speak up? Once again, this is where we get a little subjective because we don't know everything. We are so tempted to read into passages like this and say, well, this is why, da 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 da, da, da and make a whole story out of it. Now, we, do need, we can, I think, have to make some, some conclusions about what the text says in the context. And I think it's right and good, and I think there's enough information here to do this. So we don't want to just throw it up in the air and say, well, we don't know, right? So once again, I think that what we can see from this is, is what? Adam was not deceived when he sinned against God. Now, what do you mean by that? Even in 1 Timothy, and next week, the week after when we cover that, it's going to say Eve was deceived, right? But it doesn't say directly, but the inference is that Adam wasn't. And so I just want, to, I want men to feel the weight of this. We, we sinned knowing full well that we weren't even deceived. At least Eve can say, I knew what was wrong, but I, I was deceived by the serpent. The man wasn't deceived. And so the question is, why did he eat? He knew. He was the one that God said, do not do this or you will surely die. Adam was supposed to protect the garden. He was supposed to protect Eve. He was supposed to do all these things. And here, his wife hands it to him, and he goes ahead and he eats. Why would he do such a thing? And I don't know. Some people have said, well, he, didn't, he loved his wife so much, he didn't want her to be judged without him. And honestly, that's probably the only real good answer out there that I know of. Why did he do it? He loved her. This was like his soulmate. 
He said, this has come out of man. I mean, she's mine. We're together. We're, we're partners in this. We become one flesh. We cleave together, right? A man shall leave his father and mother, become one with his wife. And, and he's like, and what else does it show here? That, that men, we can be apathetic. We can stand by and let things happen and that we should never let happen. The image bearer that God has given us to bear the image is to be a protector, to be a provider, to be a protector, to guard the garden, to do all of those things. The question is, why did Adam even allow the serpent into the garden, I would ask? He was over the animals. Why would he stand by and let the creature who he is supposed to be over deceive his wife? He should have stepped in. He should have said, no, we're not going to do this, right? I'm not going to, and I would make the, even the argument, we'll see here in a little bit. He should have stopped the serpent, and we're going to see that what he fails to do, God is going to point to Christ, and that Christ will stop the serpent. So what does it say here in a little bit? We'll get there, but it says, he, the second Adam, which is Jesus, is going to crush the head of the serpent. I would like to make the argument, that's what the first Adam should have did. When the serpent came into the garden and was tempting his wife and lying to his wife, he should have crushed the serpent. He should have killed the serpent. He had dominion over the animals. Now, that's subjective. In other words, it doesn't say all of that, but I think we can read into that and say that this is what really, and clearly when we look at men today, we can say men avoid responsibility, many of us, in all sorts of ways. We look at the... the um, Single mothers, the, the, the children without fathers today, that is the biggest one. Men want to have all the, the benefits of being uh, sexually active, and then but when something happens, nobody wants to then get married and love their wife and love their children, raise their children and pay the alimony and pay the child support. No, we, we skip out on that, right? We're, we're not willing to do that. So clearly, we see through, all through Scripture, we can see that, that we're not responsible a lot of times. We're apathetic to things like that. And I'll just say, men, if you want to bear the image of God, you cannot be that way. You have to step up and you have to be responsible. You have to provide, you have to protect. Many of us have taken back seats and how our children and what they're, 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 how they're living and, and how we counsel them and, and, and what we allow into our homes and, and what we even look at in our own TV and our own phone and the language that's in our home. And, 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 and we just allow it. There was a book that we handed out several years ago called The Doorkeeper. It was a small little book. It was just about men, you are, you are guarding the door of your home and your family. What are you allowing in? And, and, and I think one of the things that the book says is if, if, a, if a known um, killer, a known child molester comes to your door and, and knocks on the door, would you just say, oh, come on in, hang out. I'm going away, but there's my family. I'm just going to head out and just make yourself at home. There's food in the kitchen, right? No, that's ridiculous. And yet, we allow all sorts of, we're not even aware of all of the other things that are coming in electronically into our home. And we just turn a blind eye to it. We say, well, I don't really know how to do all that. I just trust my kids. Well, no, we should, we should do a little Reagan. Trust but verify, right? You should look. You should find out. So I'm not really techie. Well, then you need to get techie. Or you need to find somebody that you know inside the church that is techie and help you out. You need to have serious conversations with your kids. I'm not saying that you should just crush them and not have them have a cell phone ever and not do anything like that? No, I'm not saying that. I said, but we need to be involved. We can't be sitting by apathetically and just allowing the world to flow. Well, the, the world has said this now, and, and we're supposed to not be this way. And that, no, that's, you should be the way that God has designed you, 
and it should be celebrated. God has given us a role in the home and in the church to lead, to, to be not lord over people, not to be authoritative in a harsh way, but to take headship over things. And when we fail to do that, we hurt our family. And so the next point there, not only was he deceived when he sinned against God, but Adam failed in his responsibility to protect his wife. He failed to do that. All right, verse 7, chapter, Genesis chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, when we sin, what happens? We see immediately that we understand that we are um, naked, and, and we understand sin. And, and so what do they do? They try and cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, a couple things I'll say about that. One is that um, growing up, and you've heard me say this many times, I'm sure, because uh, these, these are just the simple truths that I think that are just so clear in Scripture that, that someday God is going to show us how clear this really is and we'll be embarrassed. Um, when I was growing up, I don't know, I was 10 or under, and National Geographic um, was, you know, at my grandparents' house or whatever, and, and we would always sneak them because there was always pictures of, of women over in some jungle someplace, and they didn't have tops on, you know what I mean? And we'd laugh, and, you know, that was just a cool thing to do, and but they always had loincloths. Isn't that weird? I mean, does anybody find that just kind of odd or quite interesting? Because in every culture around the world, people wear loincloths, even in the most primitive hot jungles, because God said, when you sin, you'll feel shame, and you're going to try and cover it. And the way, and we have clothes today. Everybody wears clothes. I ask this people all the time. Why do we wear clothes? Why does all the humanity all around the world wear clothes of some sort? Now, not just loincloths, most of us wear, wear clothes. Well, some people say, well, we were hairy at one time because we were apes, and, and then we got cold, and so we need. No, it's because of sin. It's clearly because of sin. And someday I think we're going to get to heaven, and it's all, we're just, God's just going to say, Don't, didn't you see it? Like, it's everywhere. Like, just looking at people that are wearing clothes, you'd say, oh my gosh, it's a reminder of sin. It's a reminder of the fall. It's, I mean, it'll be so clear. There'll be so many things that God is just going to say, man, you looked at that way too hard. I made this so a kid could see this. And yet we have our heads in the clouds and, and we don't even see what's right in front of us. It's that simple. And so their, their hearts were turned and they were shamed. And, and so what do we see here? Sin brought guilt and shame to humanity. Maybe a year or two, probably two or three years ago, I remember preaching one morning, and, and I said, you know, where does guilt and shame come from? Some, can somebody tell me? It's sin. It, does anybody have another answer where those things come from? No, it's sin. Sin brings guilt and shame. We have it because we've sinned. We know we've sinned. It's built internally in us, and when we've sinned against the holy God, we know that it is wrong, and we have guilt and shame. Now, as we said a few weeks ago, we can sear our conscience, and it's not, it's not sensitive to sin anymore. We can get so far away, and that's why in Romans 1, he says he finally turns us over, because we've, we've so seared our conscience, it doesn't even impact us anymore. Sin doesn't even resonate with us anymore. We don't even care anymore, and so God says, look, you've seared your conscience so much, I'm just going to turn you over to the lust of your hearts and to your desires. 
Now, a man came up to me after first service, and I thought this was interesting. I'd never seen this. And he had an interesting take on it. At this particular point in Genesis 3, 7, it says, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the first time an actual plant is referenced. It's always plants and animals. It's generic. Even when Jesus, um, even when he later, we're going to see that, that God kills an animal in the garden. I know that's a little foreshadowing there for you, but it doesn't say what kind of animal it was. But here it says fig leaves. He names the type of plant. And this guy's thought was, now where do we see the fig tree? It's Israel. And Israel represents a system that tries to cover up their sin and that's why it's referenced here. It's because it's a fig tree that they're covering their sin. And I thought that was pretty perceptive. And the reason he doesn't name the animal that he kills is because ultimately that's going to be Christ. And we would never want to put an animal in that place to say, no, that's reserved for the Messiah. We're not going to lead people that direction. I thought that was pretty interesting. So I'm glad he came up and it was educational for me. So sin brought guilt and shame to humanity. All right, verse 8. I'm not going to read that. It basically, now they're, they're hiding. They've decided they hear God in the garden, and, and they're, they're hide. They go and hide. And then we pick it up in 9 through 11. It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I, was, and I hid myself. He said, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? Busted, right? They've, they've, they've sinned. They feel shame. Adam says he hid himself, right? He was afraid. See, because sin causes fear. I mean, I remember even now, but especially when I was a kid, when I sinned and I heard the sound of my father and my mother in the home, I was afraid and I hid myself. I mean, that, that just plays out over and over and over in our world. People that sin hide. That's this whole analogy of the light and the darkness. We, we want to live in the darkness because we, we, can, we don't want to bring our sin into the light. The, the, the picture here is all through Scripture, from beginning to end, of this, this truth. But what I want you to see in this text that I think is, is really, really important again is to ask the question again. Who is God talking to here? Adam. And I just want to ask Why? Why Adam and not Eve? The serpent went to Eve. She sinned first. Why doesn't he go to her? Because I, would, as, as a man, I would say, well, not my fault. She did it, right? Go to her. But he doesn't. He goes to Adam. And notice what he says. I just want to point the, the amount of, of emphasis here. But the Lord God called to the man. Now, he knows that both Adam and Eve sinned. He's calling to the man, Adam. This word man does not mean them. It means Adam, the man. And he said to him, where, were, where are you, Adam? Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself. He doesn't say we hid. <laughs> we were afraid. I, we were naked. He's, this is intimate conversation between Adam and God. And God says, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you? You not to eat. Notice the emphasis that he's saying, Adam, you were there. I told you not to do this. And that you would surely die if you did this. What is this showing? This, this, it's showing that there's this responsibility that God has been given to Adam. Five times he says you. Four times he says I. It's an intimate conversation between Adam and God. And what do we see here? This conversation, God's conversation with Adam, confirms headship and responsibility. It absolutely confirms headship and responsibility here in the text. He's saying, Adam, you were responsible to take care of the garden. You were responsible not to make sure that no one ate of the tree. Why did you do this? Because see, Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. And so all responsibility is coming back on Adam. Now, how do we now move into the New Testament and see this as well? How do we know that this responsibility and this headship has been given to Adam? Well, a couple different ways, but one particular way is we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 22. Paul says, For as by man death came, that's Adam, his, his sin, right? By man, not by, by, not by humanity, right? By a man. And how do we know it's a man and not humanity? Because it says, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. It's going to be Christ. Now he's going to be a little bit more specific in verse, next verse, 22. For as in Adam all die, and there he names the man, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. For those that are found in Christ, they'll be made alive. And so clearly he's saying that because of Adam's sin, yes, Eve sinned, just because she was deceived doesn't mean that she wasn't responsible. She still knew it was wrong because she told the serpent, I'm not supposed to do it. She said that. I, we're not supposed to eat of it. But Adam also knew, and they both sinned, but yet the responsibility now is coming back on Adam. Obviously, he will be the seed as well. His seed will bring forth humanity, right? But clearly, we see this headship and this responsibility that has been placed in Adam for all of time in humanity, right? All right, let's move on. Genesis 3, 12, and 13. The man said, the woman you have gave, excuse me, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, once again, he's still talking to the man, right? He's still addressing the man. And the man, it's a further conversation here of what we just heard, right? In 9 through 11. And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So what is Adam doing? He's blaming God. He's saying, it's the woman you gave me. Not my responsibility. I, it's your fault, Lord. I, I, you shouldn't have given her to me, right? It was your idea. Now the Lord turns to the woman, only because Adam now has brought her into the picture. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now notice that his, the amount of conversation with the woman about what she has done is one line. The conversation with, the, with Adam is a whole dissertation by God. Why have you done this? You knew better. Who told you? I mean, it's this in-depth conversation because he was responsible. He was it. He was responsible, and he failed. Now, once again, she was responsible not to sin. Don't hear that. 
but he ultimately was responsible for the protection of the garden, and I believe headship over his wife, and it should have never happened. Right? So what do we see here? A clear sign of sin is failure to accept responsibility. Neither one of them want to accept responsibility. Not me, it was you, or it was the woman. Take your choice, God. But either way, it wasn't my fault. Here, what do we see? The woman says, wasn't me, it was the serpent that did it. I, I, I'm, I was deceived. When we look at sinful behavior, no one wants to take responsibility. I remember uh, years ago, I was sitting with my granddaughter. She was a little shaver, maybe five years old. And uh, whatever it was, she had done something, and we had, I had caught her. I knew exactly what she did. And I asked her, and she said, nope, I didn't do it. And I said, no, I saw you. Nope, I didn't. <laughs> if you know me, my wife will attest to this. I will debate for a long time. She broke me, man. She just never gave. She never gave. She looked right at me and said, no, I didn't. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, so frustrating, right? But we see this in the garden, and we see this in humanity, right? Adam doesn't want to admit it. Eve doesn't want to admit it. We, we just go a few chapters more, another chapter, and what do we see? Cain does something, and God says, where's your brother? I don't know. <laughs> like, it wasn't my fault. I don't know where he's at. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know, right? We, we never want to accept responsibility. David, by God's grace, he eventually breaks, but when he has Bathsheba, he takes Bathsheba, and, and, and he doesn't want to admit responsibility, and finally, the prophet Nathan has to come and basically trick him into saying, no, this guy is you, and then he repents finally. This, this idea that God wants us to walk before him confessing our sin. I'm going to take a sidestep here just for a moment. Everyone sins, even Christians. We, we, we struggle with sin. So if you're here and you're not a believer, uh, please don't think that we are self-righteous. We want to live holy before the Lord. We strive to live holy. We believe that Christ in us allows us to live to the process of trying to live holy before the Lord, but we still are not perfect. We still struggle with sin. So what's the difference? Because I think this is so important. If you would go and you would read chapter 1 of 1 John, the, the gospel writer here, and he's not writing the gospel here, but he writes it in John chapter 3 in the gospel as well. But in, in the letter of 1 John, he basically says, hey, Jesus has come. We've touched him. We've seen him. It's all awesome. The light has come into the world. And yet if you walk in darkness, you're a liar and, and you live in, you, you don't believe the truth and, and you're, you know, you're a sinful person. You, don't, you, don't, you deny the truth. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, he is faithful and just to purify us from all unrighteousness and sin. That's basically the summary. Now, the person that's walking in the darkness and the person that's walking in the light, are they both sinners? Yes. So what's the difference? God says, I just want, I just want you to tell me. I want you to strive to live for me. Walk in the light. John chapter 3, the gospel of John, after God so loved the world, you get down to verse 19, 20, it says what? This is the verdict. Sin has come into the world and men love the darkness. And he says, I want you to walk in the light. I want you to bring your sin into the light. Because what God is saying and what he's even demonstrating here is if you would just, Adam, where are you? He wanted Adam to say, here I am. What did you do? I did it. I sinned. Here's why I sinned. Cain, why did you do it? I was jealous, Lord. I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I, I felt slighted by Abel and, and I thought you had favoritism there and so I killed him. I think Cain, cl clearly I think the gospel would say he would be forgiven. But when we say, no, I'm not telling you. I am not confessing. We walk in the darkness, and the truth has no place in our life. 
And so the, the beautiful picture there is that we, we need to walk in the light of God. We need to always walk in the understanding that God knows everything I'm doing. I want to confess. I want a clean slate. It, it will also help you live holy. You, you'll be transparent before the Lord. Because a clear sign of sin is a failure to accept responsibility. And we don't want that. All right. Verse 14. Not going to read that. Basically here the, 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 the judgment now comes. The curse is being um, yielded out by God. And the first thing he does is basically says, okay, the serpent's going to be on its belly. Um, and we don't know what the serpent looked like before, but now for some reason it's, it's going to be on its belly. It's going to be reduced um, in, in its, uh, how view, people view it, right? And we can see the picture of that in our world today when we look at uh, reptiles, when we look at snakes and things like that. For most of us, we don't enjoy snakes. There's a few of you that are out there that enjoy them. But it, it's this whole picture of Evil, and it, 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 for most of us, it, it puts an emotion over us. It's just, it's part of the creation. It, when we look at those things, it's another thing that says, God really did do this, and this is really what this is about, right? And then we pick it up in verse 15. Still, still talking to the serpent here. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity. I've said this before. Enmity, when you hear that word, it's a, it's a conflict that will never be resolved. It'll, there will never be a negotiated peace when there's enmity. There will never be a truce. There will always be conflict. There will always be tension when there's enmity. And what God is saying is, I'm going to put this, this tension, this conflict between you, the serpent, and the woman. Why? Well, he's going to get more specific. And between your offspring and her offspring. Okay, what, are, what is the offspring? And I think there, there's going to be two pictures here that I think one is more large and one's more narrow. Clearly, offspring is all offspring. So here we're going to see that who is the offspring of the woman versus the offspring of the serpent. Well, clearly... He's going to get in the next verse. The ultimate offspring of the woman is going to be Christ, the Messiah. The offspring of the serpent ultimately will be the Antichrist. However, I think what he's also saying is, is that between your offspring and her offspring, anything that the this godly that Eve brings forth that's godly, that lives a godly life, that is that honors God and loves God, is going to be at odds with those people who don't, which is the the offspring of the serpent. There's a wide road and a narrow road. There's people that love righteousness, people that don't love righteousness. There are goats and there are sheep. And there's going to be a tension there. That doesn't mean that we don't love people that are different. We do. But there's always going to be a tension there because of this enmity. Specifically, we're going to see that Christ is going to come and the, serp, the, the Antichrist is going to come, and that ultimately is going to be the final offspring that's going to resolve this. And that's where he goes into the second part of 15. He, meaning Christ here, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, where do we see this? He shall bruise your head. I think primarily we're going to see this at the resurrection, right? Because at the resurrection, we see that Jesus has defeated the enemy. It's over. He's defeated death. He's taken it. He's done it. 
The serpent thought that he was going to take Jesus down, that, that he was going to thwart God's plan for the, for the resurrection, and he bruises his heel. Yes, he kills Jesus, but that was part of what God had sovereignly planned, providentially planned, and, and it, it doesn't, it's not going to matter. Yes, Jesus died, bruised his heel, but ultimately Jesus now is crushing the serpent's head because he has defeated death and has brought forgiveness and a way of salvation for all of those who would put their trust in Christ. So this is this picture. So what do we see here? It's a God foreshadows Christ. Here's really the, one of the first places, I think, that we can see Jesus in the Old Testament. It only takes us to get to chapter 3, right? Um, and we see it. All right, verse 16. All right, got to have your Bibles open. Yeah, turn your minds on here. And uh, you need to discern everything I'm saying. And, and, and I want you to study this for yourself. This is a... There's a challenging text here. People, godly people see this differently, um, but here's how I think that we see it, and I think we can make a great case for this being the truth. So the woman to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. All right, let's just stop right there. The curse for the woman is pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I think all the ladies would say, yep, that's, that's true. Absolutely true, right? Now, I, I just want to expand your thoughts on that a little bit because I think here in a few weeks when Brian talks about this because we're going to come back to this in 1 Tim, or 1 Tim, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. We're going to see this childbearing issue raised up again and as Paul talks about it. But we're not going to go there now, but here I want you to have a broader picture of what probably, we're, we're just subjective a little bit, but I think the case can be made, is that when women gave birth, it's painful, clearly. Anybody that's alive knows that. But the women in, for many, many years, thousands of years, not only had pain in childbearing, many of them died. Many. In fact, just recently, if you read an article, there's been articles in the news and maybe even some of the newscasts, um, the Mother, the birth mortality rate of women has went up in the United States. Um, as a developed nation, we're pretty high in mortality rate for women. Now, it's about 1,200 women per 100,000. Now, okay, that doesn't seem like a lot, but that's 1,200 women. There are some countries that it's one or two women in, or 10 women per 100,000. Uh, we're about fifth or sixth. There's obviously some countries above us. There's all sorts of reasons potentially for that. But can you imagine in the first century what the mortality rate was of women? And even if you had the child, you may have been so damaged because of the birth that you weren't going to be able to have any more children, right? So when a woman understood and thought about the curse, she was reminded every time of the pain that this is part of the curse. This is part of the reason, the fall and sin, this is why I'm experiencing this, and it can lead to death. For many, it can lead to death. I think we'll talk more about that when we get to 1 Timothy, but just, it's more than just saying, well, someone gives birth and, and there's some pain involved in that. No, this was an excruciating, dangerous endeavor to have children because many women would die from that or be deeply scarred physically. Quite the curse. Quite the curse. And then it says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
that text is pivotal in how we see a lot of things in, in the church, uh, in the marriage, um, and, and we're going to wrestle with this one for a minute. And this is where you guys, I want, your, I want you to have your Bibles, I want you to pen out, be writing some notes down here. Um, you're going to have to flip a page here or two. All right, this word desire, um, I want to address that first. It's this idea of stretching uh, stretching out for something, a longing or a craving. It's this idea that we want something or we're stretching out after it. Are desires good or bad? They're both. Some desires are good. I have a desire for lunch. I have a desire to eat, sustain myself. That's good. I have a desire to love my children. I have a desire to love my wife. That's good. I have a desire to, to work and earn money. That's a good desire. I have other desires that aren't good. Certain things I want. I, I have a desire to to be better than somebody in, 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 in a wrong way, and that's a bad desire. I have desires for things, um, sexuality outside of a marriage. Well, that's not good. That's not God-honoring. And so desires of, in and of themselves are not good or bad. It's how we, what we do with them. And so we just want to kind of say that whatever this is, it's a strong desire to reach forth for something, to crave something, and that's where it's at. And then it says shall be contrary to your husband. But if you have an English Standard Version Bible, most of those say that, contrary to your husband. If you have an NIV Bible, a, a New International Version, if you have a King James, a New King James, if you have a Holman Study Bible, I could go through many. And uh, RSV, they don't say that. It's translated this way. In an NIV, NIV, it says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So that sounds different. For your husband versus contrary to your husband. Then if you want to look at the New English translation, it says, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. Okay? There's like th massive different ways to look at this. One looks like, yeah, you're, you're going to want to dominate him and control him, and he's going to rule over you. Another one says your desire is going to be for your husband, and like you, you want to be for him. You love him. You're for him. Well, that's completely different than what we just read there. And so how we interpret this text, it says everything about what's going on here. Because it's going to bring clarity to other passages in the future, in the next few weeks. So what do we, what do we, how do we look at this? How do we kind of divide this up and say, well, how can I make sense of this, right? How can I bring this around? So this word, first of all, this word desire, in, in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's teshuka. It's only listed two other times in the Old Testament, all right? This is one of the things when you study, you know, when you study Scripture, it's helpful to dig in and, and dig into the original language sometimes two other places. The first place it's listed, or one of the places it's listed that I'll mention, is the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. It says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Now, that's a good thing. His desire is for me. It's a good thing. Now, if that's what the text means, that would be like with the NIV saying, you, your desires will be for your husband. It, it paints it in a good, a, a, a loving sort of way. I don't think that's the right translation. Now, I'm going to build a case where I think that is. If you turn to Genesis chapter 4, which is just one chapter over, right? You're going to see that same word used by Moses again. 
just, just a few paragraphs later. Here he's talking to Cain. Cain has killed his brother. God is now coming to him. Cain is not happy. Actually, he's downcast. I don't even know he's killed his brother here yet. He's downcast. He's upset, right? And it says, God basically says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay, so now that word kashuka is there. Its desire is contrary to you. Uh, the NIV says there, its desire is to have you. Well, that's not a good thing. What, what he's saying here in, in 4.7 is that sin wants to dominate you, Cain. It, it wants to have you. It wants, it's contrary to you. That's why you must rule over it, because it, it's against you. Well, that's clearly different than Solomon, Song of Solomon, where it says its desire is for. And so we got to kind of say, which, which way is this? How do we look at this word then, this desire? Is it contrary? Is it for? Right? So I'm going to show you a couple reasons why I really absolutely believe it is contrary. It's the best translation. So the first thing, we're going we're to put on the screen, we're going to put both scriptures up there. All right? And they're side, you know, one on top of the other. We got Genesis 3, 16, Genesis 4, 7. The first thing, desire, right? Now, it's, it's the same. It's teshuka, it's the same word, right? It's this longing, this craving. It's a strong craving. So something here is a very strong desire, a very strong craving, reaching out for something. And, and, and look at the parallelism between these two passages. And notice it's the same author, just a few paragraphs over, using this word, right? And then the next thing we want to compare is it says it's contrary, Right now, you could say, well, in the NIV, it says it's, you know, doesn't use that, but the ESV says it's contrary. And it's also here in Genesis 4 6, shall be contrary in 3 16, and is contrary in Genesis 4 7. So it's, it's, it's saying, look, these things are opposed to you, right? So sin is trying to overcome you. And I'm going to make the argument that because of the fall, we're stepping outside of our roles. And if we look at Eve saying, and really there in the garden, when she decided to eat, she stepped out from underneath her role and she wanted to do what she wanted. And I think that's the challenge in our culture today. We want what we want. And that, that seems to be a, a, the right way to interpret this. And notice that it says in Genesis 3.16, it says, be contrary to your husband. So that's what it's contrary to. There's this tension, this conflict between husband and wife. And in Genesis 4-7, it's sin to Cain, right? It wants to overcome him, right? It seems to me, and then obviously it says to rule over, right? So in both cases, he's making the statement here that our job is to rule over it, to, to, to take dominion over it. The challenge here is, is that as, as because part of the fall, men will not rule over well. Because of the fall, we will not love the way we should. We will be harsh when we do it, and that's part of the fall. Women will not want to, to, to yield and to submit because that's not what they want. It's, it's these two roles all the way back to the garden when he goes to Eve. It's, this, it's the idea of corrupting this relationship, this marital, and causing conflict here because that's the image bearer. 
And so here we see the fall has corrupted it, and that's what the text is really saying. Your desire will be contrary to your husband's, but he will rule over you. You won't want to do it. He won't do it well. It's going to be a mess. And I think most of us can attest. It is, right? It is a mess. It's hard. It's very hard. But I want to make two more arguments why I think this is the correct way of looking at it. Let's go fast forward thousands of years. We get into the New Testament. And Paul, in a couple different places, in, in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, through 20, 18 and 19, I'm just going to read the first two, says this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right. So first thing, this whole process is what pleases God. He goes on there and says in verse 20, he says, children, obey your parents in everything as for this pleases God. So he says it's fitting to the Lord to do this, and it pleases the Lord when, we're, when we follow this way. Notice that what Paul says here is he's speaking to, to men and say, don't be harsh with them, because he, he understands that because of the fall, we are harsh, right? Because that's part of the curse. And he says, wives, submit your husbands, because I know that's not, what you're, that's not gonna come easy to you. You're not gonna want to do that. We, we see that again when Paul talks to the, church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's saying, look, love her, die for her. Don't be harsh. We see that in Peter as well, right? Not to be harsh. Well, what else do we see in Ephesians 5? It says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, right? And then it says, wives, respect your husbands. So what Paul is pointing out here, he says, look, there's a problem that goes all the way back to the beginning. And now that Christ has come, Here's how we deal with this. Here's what I need to remind you. In Christ, this is back to, the, back to the image bearer to get to the image of Christ that we need to live. And so he's referencing the New Testament. It goes right back to say, this is the problem. This is our heart problem. And so what do we see here? The curse of sin brings marital conflict. The curse of sin brings marital conflict. Now, I, I give you one more reason why I think this is the the correct interpretation of this. Let me ask you a question. Um, Enmity, it's consistent, right? So when God says there's gonna be enmity between uh, the woman and the serpent, that's forever. That's never gonna be resolved. It's forever, it's consistent. Pain and childbearing, is that consistent? Yeah. Every woman has it, it's consistent. Then when we look at Genesis 3, 17 through 19, now he's, he's pouring out his um, judgment or his, his curse upon man. And let's, let's look at what this says. And, he, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the, of the tree of which I commanded you, there it is again, I commanded you, Adam, not to eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, like because what you did, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Here it is, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Okay, are thorns and thistles consistent? Yeah, weeds are consistent. That's another one of those big things that just jumps out at me in creation. Like, it's the result of the fall. I've said this before. Um, I have a strawberry patch, and I spend hours and hours and hours pulling weeds. And I'm reminded when I'm out there doing that, it's because of sin, (laughs) right? It's, and I hate it, right? It's consistent. And no matter what I do, I, 
I, I pull, I pull, I pull, I put tarps down, I put mulch down. It comes up through the tarp. It just comes, I mean, it just, it's, it's just invasive, right? And it's a picture here. It's consistent. All right, keep going. 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Okay, is work hard? Is it ever gonna get easy? No. Are we always gonna sweat? Yes. It's consistent. It's constant. Till you return to the ground, for out of the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Are people dying consistently? Yes. Going back to the dust? Yes. So everything there and all of the, the things that are part of this curse are all absolutely consistent and 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 just clearly that they're there. Now let's go back and look at that word desire and say, what if it was um, your desire is for your husband? Do we see that? Are all women's desires for their husband? Do they want to, to just, you know, honor and please and, and you know, just, that, that's not consistent. There are some women that do that beautifully and they're, they're beautiful image bearers. I mean, just incredible but many in our culture are not. Just like there are some men that provide well and, and, and don't lord over their wives and, and treat their wives well and be willing to die for their wives. And then there's a whole bunch of men that don't do that at all, and they're horrible, right? There's a consistency that has to happen here, I think, in the text. And we see that that's not the case. And so I think the best translation here is that your desire is contrary to you, right? And it, just, it shows that on both sides our hearts are hard, we, we will not love well, and, and, and women will struggle to submit to that because we aren't loving well, and it's just this ongoing thing, and the only thing that fixes that is when we spend time in, in the text of Scripture, in the New Testament, and we see the roles that God has given us, and it says, this is, men, how you should love your wife. I mean, Ephesians 5 is the best, and says, you know, if I am willing to die for my wife and, and to just live in a sacrificial way, then there's no problem. My wife will clearly want to come under and say, absolutely, I want to fulfill the role that God has given me. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm better. It doesn't mean I'm more valuable. It just means it's, it's a beautiful picture of what God's design is. And so then we look at verse 20. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. So once again, we see this naming, and this is, a, this is not a, a lording over thing, it's just a responsibility thing. He called her names Eve, right? Because she was the mother of all living. I mean, that is a huge compliment here. Women bring forth life. How much more of an image bearer and, and creator, the image of the creator than you want. A woman brings forth life into the world. And yet we have all sorts of people that want to deny feminism and tear it down and say that being a woman is less. Absol oh my gosh, it's anything far from it. The mother of all living. The gift to be able to bring life into the world. Finally, some good news in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I talk about this all the time. What did God have to do? He had to kill an animal. First death in Scripture that we see. God says, you, would, you did not take responsibility. Now I must kill an animal, an innocent animal, to cover your sin. And so he does. And what is this a picture of? This is a picture of Christ, 
right? It's a picture that God is going to make a way for us. So what's the point? God graciously provides a sacrifice for our sin. You know, we, we, we just spent seven, eight months in Hebrews. It starts right here in, in Genesis, though. God is making a way by killing an animal. And what we're going to see, then we saw all the way through Hebrews, is the whole Jewish process, the old covenant, was all about animal sacrifices, covering our sin, uh, making sure that there was a way. But ultimately, it leads to what? A perfect high priest, a perfect sacrifice in Christ. And he takes away our sin. He atones for it. He satisfies the wrath of God graciously and lovingly for all those who will come to know him and believe and trust in him. So what's your next step? What's your next step? Two things I think we should take away from the text that this whole thing sits because it's, it's the consequence of sin, all the fall, all of it, that, that, that the conflict that it's caused, especially in the marriage, and then obviously how God is working through those consequences to bring about the Savior. The next step, bring glory to God by trusting in his sacrifice and honoring the roles he has designed us for. So the first thing I would just encourage you is you gotta, you gotta trust in the creator that he has provided the sacrifice to redeem us. He has graciously, lovingly made a way, sacrificially, by sending his son to die because of the mess sin has put us in, because of our rebellion. He has given us the ability to be made right, to have fellowship with him again by taking on flesh and becoming a man and dying on a cross for us. Now, here's the thing. We can say we believe, but I want to encourage you that believing, you have to be careful because this believing and trusting in is not necessarily the same thing. We can say we believe in something, but we don't trust in it. I may say, hey, um, I, I believe that this old little you know, narrow bridge that crosses the river here uh, it will hold me, but I'm not going out there. Right? I ain't doing it. I don't trust in it. I believe it. I tell you I believe it. But, but when I don't step on it, then you say, well, then you really don't believe it. So the, the question is, when we come to faith, when we come to say, well, I believe in Jesus, will you live in for him? Are you willing to die for him? Do you really trust him? Are you trusting him with your future? Are you, trust, are you bringing your sin into light because you trust he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanses you from all unrighteousness? Are you really doing that? Well, well no. Well, then I'm saying you don't trust him. And belief is more than just intellectual belief. We've said this before, right? Even the demons believe. They don't trust in Christ. They don't trust in the work of the cross. They don't step out and say, no, I'm living for you. I want to be like you. Big difference. That's why I think when, it, when the end comes and it says there in, in Matthew, it says, you know, Jesus says, get away from me. I never knew you. That's, I think that's going to be the difference is there's going to be people that have head knowledge and have put their belief there, but there's no trust there. There's no life change. There's no, someone's not been born again. It's a, it's a superficial thing. And so we've, we want to be very clear about the gospel. The gospel is transformative. It is not just intellectual. So the question is, are you trusting in God's sacrifice, which would be Christ? The second thing, are you honoring the role that he has designed us for? Because how we live out this thing God is the creator, 
He has the right to tell us what to do, how to live, what roles we should play. He's designed us uniquely and beautifully. We should, we should praise and, and admire feminism and, and uplift it and, and masculinity. We should not diminish it. We should rejoice in those things as they're different. And yet we live in a world that constantly is confused about those things, denying those things. If we want to be, bring glory to God, we will live in a way that he's designed us. And, and that is why we, that's why it's important to preach the scripture, to, to wrestle with the truth of it. And so I encourage you today, if you've not put your trust in Christ, that's where you begin. Ask God to forgive you. Tell him that you trust him with all of your life, with your sin, to, to cleanse you, to give you eternal life. You put your trust there and you will strive to live for him. Ask him to come in and change you. And then commit as believers to strive and to live in a way that pleases and honors God by the way we've been created and not try and circumvent what God has done in some way because we think we know best. We will continue our study next week. Uh, but I just want to encourage you today. Um, study the word. That's try and rightly divide it. Pray that God will, through the Holy Spirit, will give you wisdom to rightly divide the word. It, it takes some work, but that's where we want to wrestle. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, we just thank you that you've given us the word. You, you are the word in Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice that you've made so that we, for those who come to know you, Father, can be made right before you, that we can be cleansed and purged of all sin and be forgiven and spend eternity with you, Father. Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom and discernment as we approach the word. We want to, to rightly divide it, first and foremost, for your glory and your honor, but Lord, we, we want to live by it, and so we want to rightly divide it so we know how to live. So, Father, I pray that you will continue to give us wisdom here in, this, in your local church to be able to do that and do it well. And then, Father, help us to strive to live for you. Help our belief be more than just intellectual, but help it to be one of trusting and striving for holiness. I know we come up short, and Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy. Help us to be a church that encourages one another and at times admonishes one another. But Father, we rejoice in what you've done. We want to live as, as, a, as a people before you um, that live in the light. Sinful, but, but trusting you and, and confessing our sins on a regular basis. Striving to, to put them to death so that we can bring you honor and glory. Father, if there's someone here today that does not know you, Lord, I pray that they will put their trust in you this morning. And you will make them a new creation in Christ Jesus for your glory, and their good. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.